Welcome to episode number 10 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for Wednesday, August 24th, 2016. How are you doing, Mike? Uh, I'm doing good. Uh, how about you? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Been getting a lot of stuff accomplished the last few days. Um, been very productive. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I'm excited to be doing this again. Um... Do you, do you get annoyed when people call you Michael? Are you one of those guys that you, you only like the short... I, I'd rather be called Mike because whenever, you know, I'm reminded of Michael, I'm just reminded of my mom, you know, whenever I did something, like, really bad. Oh, uh, yeah. I'd always be like, you know, Michael, get your ass in here. Like, oh, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do anything. And my mom's a really tall woman, so, yeah. And that, that's, you know, you definitely don't want to get on your bad side. So, um, yeah, before we get into all this again, I want to thank everybody for uh, leaving the comments and everything on the iTunes. Um, one thing I did want to mention, though, because we got one, I, you know, this isn't going to be all the time. I'm not always going to address every single damn comment we get anywhere, you know, but but something I did want to point out. And I feel the need to point this out every now and then. Um, this is a show that's mainly about the show Unsolved Mysteries. I mean, yes, we do talk about the segments of like paranormal and cryptozoological and ghosts and all that, but it's not really a show that's like delving into these mysteries on their own. We're more or less commenting on the segments of Unsolved Mysteries and kind of giving our personal recollections and thoughts on what the segment presents. Because um, someone was wanting us to, to clarify about the Black Dahlia murder, about how... Elizabeth Short was actually a hermaphrodite, and she wasn't, um, basically the show had kind of portrayed her in, in the wrong kind of light, and how she wasn't trying to chase fame, she ran away from her parents, because her parents would have never understood about her being a hermaphrodite back in like the 20s or 30s or whatever it happened, but uh, yeah. the whole thing is like, the, the show never brought that up, the show never talked about that, so that's why we didn't really talk about it, because it's kind of like we're sticking to the show, and what the show you know we're cut, like well, I said, some, sometimes we go in and, and look at and and some extra research but that's only if it's listed on some of the source sources that we are using uh, i'm i'm using the unsolved mysteries website and the unsolved mysteries wikia so if that type of information is not included there i probably won't talk won't mention it but also, we only have, we have a limited amount of time. We don't want this to be a three-hour-long show. Right. So you know, uh, so, so sometimes you know we we might uh, talk uh, about certain things that not as in depth as you might like. But you know, that's just how it is. Man, it's not that we were afraid to like not go there or whatever. I mean, I it, oh yeah, yeah, I would have went there. I just you know, it was kind of news to me when I first heard about that. So. Oh yeah, me me too. Uh, if they didn't mention it, then I I, I didn't know, wouldn't really know about it because we're just going off of the stuff that we uh, heard on Unsolved Mysteries. But there's one particular case in this episode that there's some extra stuff that I will talk about. Right, uh, which I which. Because I mean, I personally felt like it was worth mentioning um, as well. So, I mean, yeah, but also like another thing I wanted to clarify is that, um, you know, like these these episodes are broken down into kind of random segments. So one segment will be a ghost. One segment will be UFO. One segment will be bizarre murder. Um, yeah, that's how Unsolved Mysteries did it. 
It, you, you you never yeah. you never watched an episode of Unsolved Mysteries and it's like all right tonight we're just talking about bizarre murders and tomorrow we're just talking about UFOs. No, they they mixed it up and I loved that. Like in one episode, I think they had one UFO special. I think once. Yeah, so like in one one episode of Unsolved Mysteries, you got like four completely different stories, and it was I fucking loved that. That was great. It's like a. a That's kind of what we're trying to do. Is try we're trying to be. Uh, a bit eclectic or you know try to have more of a variety uh, and the way to do that is to have more the type of format that we have here so some people might want to hear you know about bizarre murders or other people want to hear about a uh, mysterious legend or the unexplained and, and so we want to provide that opportunity for you know whoever is listening and also it's more fun that way to kind of to focus on different stuff and to have a variety of topics to talk about uh, in one show. Because if we just talked about just UFOs or just bizarre murder, it was, it, it, we kinda, you, you'd get burned out eventually. Yeah, exactly. Um, so with that being all that being said, uh, yesterday I did make a fan page for the Unco- Uncovering Unsolved Mysteries podcast on Facebook. So now you should uh, be able to look us up on Facebook. I think Facebook's kind of weird with how they work with everything. I think you either need a certain amount of likes or you need to be on the page in existence for a certain period of time before yeah. you turn up in the search results. Um but yeah, I mean, just keep checking back. Uh, that that's probably the best way to equally reach both of us. Uh, YouTube's a decent way, but I I think that's a lot of Mike's people since they're uploaded on his channel. So if you uh, comment on the Facebook page, then we'll we'll both uh, see it. Well, I need to make Mike an administrator on that page. That reminds me. Um, but yeah, so you can like it, and that's the easiest way to connect with us. Probably give us suggestions and all that kind of stuff. And uh, as some of you well know, we do take your suggestions because we've covered quite a few of people's suggestions already. So with all that being said, uh, the first segment that we're going to talk about this week is Pike's Peak Bigfoot. This is one that Mike chose. Um, Mike wanted to talk about big, hairy, human-looking things. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talked about the Oregon Bigfoot already, and this is uh, before I even saw the Oregon Bigfoot segment. This is the first one that I saw. I, I, I don't. It made an impact on me because no, I didn't see this at a young age or anything. It's just when I found the the season segments uh, from where uh, online where we we found them. I that one really stood out to me. And I, and I think it was because I think it was actually really well put together for the most part. It is really short, so I, I do agree that there could have been a little bit more there. But it also was the first season, so I could kind of see why it's not as in depth as some of the other ones were. But at the same time, there's still there was still enough there for it to leave an impact on me. In particular, the sketches of the Bigfoot, the uh, sequence where the Bigfoot runs across uh, the street and then runs uh, by this uh, person's home in the snow. It's a really well shot sequence. Uh, the practical effect of the guy in the Bigfoot suit is is looks really great as well. Plus, I also liked. Uh, the whole sort of thing where the Bigfoot sort of ransacked somebody's house and then left behind some fur. And then there's this other guy, this scientist guy, analyzed it and pretty much came to the conclusion that, oh, it's not 
it has to be some sort of ape, which is definitely one of those light bulb moments or one of those big moments where like, whoa, whoa, this is big, this is huge, but who knows? Bigfoot has been kind of, a lot of people believe it's hoax, and I can see why. I think the Patterson video, I think even Richard Patterson himself came out a while back, and he said that it was a fake um, before he passed away, if I remember correctly. Now, what's the so, Richard Patterson video for those who may not know? Richard Patterson, do you know? Do you not know what that is? Uh, uh, is that is that the famous one? That's like his, that's the famous one. Okay, that 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 you know of him walking uh, the Bigfoot yeah. walking through the woods and people. Yeah. Okay. I remember reading that somewhere. I could be wrong, but I remember reading something where before he passed away, like he said to somebody or or a friend of his or whatever that it was a fake it was all it was all uh um, phony it wasn't real these people are fucking Uh dicks all these like fakers like with the crop circles and the bigfoot uh fakings the loch ness monster yeah it just it just seeks to to you know just fuck up the credibility of, of the legitimate ones, which I yeah. mean, we know with crop circle, which God, I can't believe we haven't done a crop circle segment yet. Uh, you know, like it's, there's so, there's so many legitimate ones out there that couldn't, it's like, you know, the real McCoys from the fake ones. I mean, sometimes yeah. it's harder to, to tell right out of the gate, but I mean, especially when I gotta the- admit Patterson did a great job, you know? So, and with the Loch Ness monster, the infamous photo that everybody, you know, attributed to being an actual picture of Nessie, that was just uh, some toy submarine with like an inflatable sort of thing on top of it. So it was all, you know, they had it set up. They shot on a black and white camera, and uh, yeah, it was pretty crazy. Wow, uh, that yeah. story. This uh, this Pike's Peak one, um, y- you know. I have the ultimate box set collection. I've seen every single one of those episodes probably 30 plus times each. Um, so I was very acquainted with the Oregon Bigfoot um, segment that, we had ta- that we've talked about earlier. And that's a great segment. I, I mean, when I look back at it, I could probably say that is a better segment. It's just this was the first one that I saw, so it left a little bit more of an impact. Because yeah. I didn't really watch the Mysterious Legends set. And I mean, I I get that, but with that being said, I I did think this was the much weaker of the two. There just wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of meat on this segment. Um, there were some kind of cool things, but I mean, with the Oregon one, you, you know, you, I guess the scene that made it for me was was the guy who was staking some land who actually saw the Bigfoot and it chased him through the woods. And like, I think by that time, Unsolved Mysteries had gotten really really good with their yeah. kind of cinematography and. There, uh, that was a great sequence, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was a great sequence, and and I believe the actual uh, witness uh, reenacted the segment, so it was like the actual guy and not some yeah. guy who looked completely different, which is always nice when they can do that, and that actually happened in another segment we're going to talk about with Diane Lebanek, but... Um, yeah, so uh, basically, um, Pikes Peak is a sanctuary for mountain lions and bobcats, etc. But re- uh, recently, as of when this segment was shot, uh, there've been to believe uh, to there it has been to believe to be. Wow, that's kind of a fucked up sentence. Basically, there's some Bigfoot living in Pikes Peak, y'all. That's what you need to know. <laughs> okay, um, 
For hundreds of years, strange ape-like creatures have been seen across the western United States. The Indians called them Sasquatch, which I did not know that. I always heard the term Sasquatch, but I did not know that was a uh, Indian or Native American uh, terminology. Um, today, they well, I remember the Sasquatch is used as sort of a uh, tale, you know, to tell kids, you know, uh, hey, you better not misbehave, or the Sasquatch is gonna, it's gonna get you. So. That was kind of an interesting thing. Well, that is that is in the area that that you do live at, Mike. So I would imagine people did tell you those things growing up, but I, I never heard that growing up. No, it was about it was about I was talking about the Native Americans. That was in their culture. They'd say things like the, the better behave or the Sasquatch. You know, Mike, I'm asking you where you're hiding Bigfoot. Just tell me. I know. <laughs> I know you know. I know you know more than what you're letting on to. You live in Vancouver, Washington. You, you have answers. If I did, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'd be like, you know, this, uh, this segment kind of says stuff that has been said many a times. Uh, many share the belief that uh, these are misidentifications of other animals, but uh, today there are a lot of people who have actually... You know, it was technically the first Bigfoot segment on the show. So Yeah, yeah, it was, which is cool. Um, so it all begins the morning of March 27, 1987. Dan Messias and his son discovered some mysterious tracks in the snow. This this part I thought was pretty cool. Um, his son, did, they discovered some mysterious tracks in the snow, and uh, Dan had spent much of his life outdoors, but he did not recognize these particular tracks. Uh, the next night, on a hunch, they stayed up late downstairs watching TV, and every 15 or 20 minutes or so, he'd go to his window, because I guess they heard a noise out there, and a few seconds later, he saw some large creatures running down the road. There was a small run, one around 5'7", and the other one looked like it was about 6'2". to six foot two. Um, Other than the hair covering their entire bodies, they looked just like humans. The next day, Dan took pics of the tracks, and... The large set measured about a foot long, which is pretty fucking crazy for a human, well, non-human foot. And then the smaller one was about eight inches in length. Um, then um, Von Langen, an animal physiologist, believes that uh, the, these plaster replicas that he had had, because they cut to this guy's office or whatever, he had these plastic replicas, and he believed that they fit the print made by the tracks. Um, the print itself did not fall into any category of grizzly bear classification or anything like that. It's a primate foot. I mean, there's there's no doubt. It's a it's a foot of a primate, a bipedal, uh, what non hominoid, bi uh, whatever. Well, it could be semi hominoid. If you think about it, I mean, if it's walking upright, you know, it could be part human. Well, that's that's always been the whole thing about Bigfoot is it's the missing link, and that's why some people are so. Um, eager to find it so they can kind of prove the whole evolution thing that much more correct or whatever how whatever side yeah. of that you fall on um so in uh 1978 um well actually dan's dan messiah's nocturnal sightings was featured in a number of papers and then he was contacted by a bunch of people who had also witnessed similar sightings in 1978 jeremy swisher came into contact with one of these creatures in pike's peak he saw what looked like an individual, and then when he turned around, it came towards them, and it started to chase them. He was saying it was a fairly good-sized-looking man, but it was covered in hair, about six foot tall. Uh, the run was more or less like an athlete. 
Um, he was right across the road from them, and it scared them off, so they, they ran away from this thing. Um, for years, eyewitnesses have claimed to see uh, creatures like Bigfoot. Was that the one at Pike's Peak? Yeah, that was the one that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that 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 is an example of a, of a reenactment that was pretty lazy. Yeah, yeah. It's like you had the suit, Bigfoot suit, for the one segment, but you couldn't have a guy in the suit for this segment. I mean, I wouldn't really think it would cost that much extra to have the guy in the Bigfoot suit around at Pike's Peak, and then like it hiding in the bushes somewhere. Or across the street, and then across the road, have the reenactors like look at it, like, oh my god, ah, <laughs> and then run away. But apparently not. <laughs> how you just how you just delivered that line remind me of that one movie with that famous quote: "He Troll ate shit. them, and now he's gonna eat me." Yeah, he's like, oh, oh my god. Yes. What movie was that from? I know you know. Called Troll Two. It's nice. one of the best. So bad, it's good movies ever made. Oh, I gotta watch that one. I haven't seen that one. There's more than just one scene like that. That's so bad, it's good though. I mean, there's other stuff that's really just <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, you guys gotta go and look up that clip that we're talking about uh, from Troll Two. Whoever he was like, he ate them, and then they're gonna eat me. <laughs> just the, how he, like, how would the director be okay with that? Like, yep, sounds good. Put it in the can. Good day's work there, you know? Like, what the fuck? Oh, my God. <laughs> Mike, man, that uh, there's so much passion how you delivered that. I think you have a, a career in acting. Um, so, for years, eyewitnesses have claimed to see a creature like Bigfoot, specifically in the Pacific Northwest. That's why I feel like Mike has more information than what he's laying on. Uh, it wasn't a, a bear or anything like he'd seen before. This is an anonymous witness saying this. Um, he stayed at a good distance, and he seemed to have a figure of a human except hair everywhere on its body. So we're noticing a theme here. Um, in, early, in early August of 1988, uh, as Mike was saying earlier, a cabin was broken into by a large animal. Well, the one before that, I think, was the one that anonymous guy was the one where the Bigfoot was that the one where the it was actually you actually saw a guy in a Bigfoot suit unnaturally walking across the street and then yeah. running. Yeah. yeah, I wish I could show footage from that, but no, I can't. So, yeah, I'm gonna have to put the image in your brain, folks. Just picture, just picture uh, somebody in a uh, Bigfoot, uh, a, a Bigfoot suit. Everyone's got a mental image of that, especially given movies like Harry and the Hendersons. Like, yeah, everyone's got a, a Bigfoot. Uh, that's a that's an underrated movie. I feel like. I don't yeah, know. or or the Jack Link's uh, beef jerky. Yeah, yeah, more yeah, more recent <laughs> reference. Yeah, that's a good that's a good example. Um, so in early August of 1988, the year that I was born, uh, I was only well, no, it was a month before I came into the world. Uh, cabin was broken into by a large animal the cabin door sustained considerable damage and then the next morning two boys found tufts of hair in the screen door now this is not the first um example or the first time that we've gotten hair samples like this because in the swamp or the skunk ape episode the uh the bigfoot of the everglades as he's called uh skunk ape mm -hmm. uh they found um pat tufts of hair on branches that that were way too high for any normal animal to leave yeah so, well, it probably technically was the first time because this was the first Bigfoot segment. Well, on I was the just show. saying for the show in general. Um, yeah. 
and and those were analyzed too and they ruled out like hairs that would be used in a synthetic costume for the skunk ape one but what was annoying is they never followed it up because they said uh we'll get the result the, the results are being developed right now and we'll get them to you as soon as we have them. and then obviously you know that was years ago and you know who knows what the results came back as which the unsolved mysteries will leave you on a cliffhanger every now and then i mean aside from the mystery generally being unsolved yeah <laughs> um, not very often though which is nice but when but yeah when it does stuff like that it is kind of frustrating especially when you're like oh we'll get back to it and we'll have more information and then like there isn't any more information right. there's no update there is no more funyuns i don't know that was a reference to my last video that i made that nobody saw um <laughs> <laughs> so Unsolved Mysteries sent the hair to a lab, uh, University of California to be exact. Um, they tested it for animals like deer and bear, and it only reacted to primates, as Mike was saying earlier. Uh, it eliminated um, all primates except for humans and chimpanzees. And uh, the guy was saying, he's like, it's hard to see how this type of animal has been able to evade capture for hundreds of years. Which, again, kind of goes back to what we talked about in the Oregon one. It's like, you know... It's just we don't know. I mean, it, it's it's maybe it's smarter than we think it is. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like kind of one of those things. Like back in the eighties and nineties, the stuff was like a lot more viable to um, kind of accept that it. You know, maybe this was out there, and it was just you know yeah. whatever. But now well, that's kind of like what we were saying. Where you know, if it was out there, it probably isn't alive anymore. So. That's a big thing. No wonder we're not seeing anything. It's a probably isn't around. Right, because, you know, it'd have to mate, you know, there'd have to be a female and a male and they'd have to mate and they'd have to have babies. And it's like, you know, it just seems. Well, with this this particular one, it does seem there's a little bit of a reference to the, the, that there might be a smaller one. But, right, yeah, that's true, because they were saying the 5-7, but that might have been the female as well, but, uh, you know, who knows, it could have been... I the... think there's also a segment of sightings that had something like that, too. I remember something with, like, a baby Bigfoots or something. Like, this guy ran, he was uh, hiking the Pacific Northwest somewhere, and he came across, uh, you know, a, a Bigfoot, like... Uh, nest or something like like a bunch of bigfoot so we came across like these babies and then the mama the mother like saw that this fucking guy was <laughs> hanging around her kids and just fucking chased after him it's probably bullshit but it, it is kind of funny to think about it, really <laughs> yeah so i i don't know i don't really have anything else to say on this particular one i guess this one was gonna, i don't either it was gonna be a it, was, it was a short one it was a short one but i wanted to mention it because i think that somebody did talk about did sort of uh, name drop it on one of my youtube comments and also i wanted to mention it too since it was technically the first bigfoot segment on the show that i remember seeing so there are some things about it that are that are are, are really nice to see the the artist renderings of the what the Bigfoot looked like and, and some of the reenactments. But yeah, I would say the, the Oregon Bigfoot is probably better and maybe even the Yeti because you have the whole story of the guy going up to the mountains and then finding some Yeti paw and then sort of doing a switcheroo like Indiana Jones or something. Yeah. Yeah. That one was, a, that was a really good one as well. Skunk ape is actually really good too. Um, if you, if you haven't seen that one yet, you should check that one out. 
Um, because that's that's actually my stomping grounds here in Florida. So Skunk Ape, check it out, Everglades. Um, so I'm flipping the script. I know I wanted to talk about the one, but I'm going to talk about this other one instead, just because I'm feeling it more right now. Uh, th this next segment we're moving on to is uh, Cynthia Anderson, uh, or, or what I like to call "I Love You, Cynthia," is what stood out to me a little bit. Yeah, um, I liked this one. This was, uh, I believe, this was Mike's pick, and uh, this is this is actually one of the handful of segments that I remembered from a from seeing as a kid. Like I, I did... is that one on set? No, it is not. Unfortunately, that doesn't make any sense. That should be. That should have been on the Bizarre Murders set. Yeah, I mean, solely for the wall graffiti alone. Uh, the, the well, and also the fact that she had she had these dreams, so that ties into it too. So yeah, this yeah. is one I remember as a kid because there's a, a scene in the uh, segment where uh, the guy who's suspected of kidnapping this woman uh, writes, "I love you, Cindy," on this wall across the street at a strip mall. Uh, from where she was working, and she's had to see it like every day for six months, um, and they covered it up. But then it came back again, and it was signed by GW, and they were thinking maybe GW was her kidnapper. But um, yeah, I liked this one a lot. Um, I, I've kind of forgotten about it. You know, a lot of times just mentioning the name of the segment, it's hard for me to recall it right off the bat. But then when I, when you told me about the whole "I love you, Cynthia" thing, I was like, oh yeah, I remember this one. This is a really good one. Um, so in 1980, 20-year-old Cynthia... C Cindy... No, Cynthia. Whatever. She's also known as Cindy, so... Okay. Either way. I, I, I thought... I knew my brain wasn't that stupid when I write notes. Um... <laughs> 20-year-old Cindy Anderson was plagued by vivid dreams. In one episode, Cindy recognized the man at the door and let him in. In the middle of the dream, her trust was betrayed. Cindy became increasingly tormented by these dreams. So she's having these dreams that this guy's tormenting her, which is fucking weird that someone would be having yeah. these kind of dreams to begin with. Um, I mean... That's what people think there might have been some sort of psychic connection. Maybe that these dreams were warning her of something that might happen in her future. The the dream sequences themselves were also really well shot, well lit, uh, efficiently creepy and nightmarish. Didn't they have that like ghosting effect on everything, where everything kind of yeah. left trails and stuff? Like, uh -huh. yeah, that's used a lot in Unsolved Mysteries for sure. But it does convey dreamlike, you know, sentiments. Dreamlike qualities, yeah. yeah. So Cindy was talking to her mom about the dreams, and her sister overheard them talking. Uh, her sister believed the dreams could have been a premonition. Uh, the m nightmares lasted for a year. Then on August fourth, nineteen eighty-one. Uh, she became employed as a legal secretary. Um, she Every time she would go into the office, uh, she, she arrived before the attorneys that she worked for arrived. She'd always keep the door locked, and because of her paranoia, I guess stemming from these dreams, she also had a buzzer installed on her desk, which I'm guessing is some, was some kind of silent alarm. Yeah, um, so she could alert the shop next door if there was any trouble. Yeah. So at noon, Jim Rabbit and Jay Felstein, her attorney bosses, had arrived back at the office. Uh, the lights were on. The door was locked. They went in. They yelled for Cindy. No answer. The phones hadn't been placed on hold, which they normally would have been if Cindy had left, you know, officially. Um, and strangely enough, Cindy had left her romance novel open to the only violent scene in the book when the heroine was held at knife point. The attorneys had a sickening feeling that something was wrong. Yeah, that really stood out to me. Just a whole sort of coincidence. And that's what, really what it might 
probably was. It was just pure coincidence. Yeah, I, w- I would think so. That's still creepy, though. I mean, that's still something that is definitely pretty unsettling, though, makes, the whole thing where... It, it makes for good TV and a good story. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it's even better that it's actually real. Right. So it wasn't like some... Wasn't some scene in a romance novel, for instance. <laughs> yeah, there was no way Unsolved Mysteries was going to leave that detail out. Um, so after that, Cindy was never heard from or seen again. No farewell letter, no hint, no nothing. Although I gotta, I gotta say, why is that a romance novel? If there's a scene where the hero gets abducted at knife point, you're asking this question when one of the number one selling books was uh, t- Fifteen Shades of Grey, where it's basically oh, Fifty Shades, Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, okay, <laughs> that's that's not enough shades of grey, Josh. <laughs> yeah, that that's actually a plausible amount of shades of grey. Fifteen is enough to work with. Fifty's a little bit more excessive. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, a manageable amount of shades of gray by josh cannon um so yeah cindy was wasn't heard from after that she just basically up and up and disappeared from uh from the attorney's office and for eight years it baffled the police and cindy's family uh they felt perhaps maybe she was suffering from amnesia which i want to point out right now that's another trope or commonality that you notice in this show and i wouldn't say it's a trope actually i would just say it's something that uh, you yeah. notice a lot in this show is amnesia. That that is something, and I guess when I had the box set, I kind of forgot how just how much they talked about yeah. amnesia on this show. Well, there actually are there actually are particular segments that are devoted to amnesia cases, right? So I do find those to be pretty interesting. Yeah, they usually uh, are. And I mean, I understand why the box set left them out because it's not like the creme de la creme of the Unsolved Mysteries crop. But uh, I still think they're interesting. Yeah, it, but it does. Not only does it happen a lot on this show where people get hit in the head and they forget or they just forget for no apparent reason. But or they forget because of stress yeah, or yeah. You know, some sort of situation in their life that's just too traumatic for them. So they just it ends up causing amnesia. Yeah. Um, amnesia is a very I I particularly find amnesia very fascinating because it is one of the very kind of unexplained sort of things that happens with the human brain. That's one of those like what triggers it? It could just be like a bump on the head, and it might not even be that serious of a bump on the head. But because you hit a certain part of your brain, then it gives you amnesia. Or, you know, it's caused by some sort of sort of uh, stress or some sort of secret or something or that you've been holding back in your life or whatever. And then it just comes to a head in the worst way and then completely just wipes your memory. It's very it's fascinating and tragic at the same time, because it seems like a lot of these amnesia cases uh, that I've seen featured on the show even if these P individuals are found, they do not remember who they are. Right. And it's ruined marriages and it's ruined relationships with children. I mean, I was watching this one where this woman just had a uh, aneurysm in her brain and it just destroyed her memory. And it, yeah. it kind of gave her a little bit of brain damage, too, because she'd randomly like walk off. Um, yeah. Is that the woman who thought she was still in her 20s or something? She thinks she's living in the 50s or whatever, or the 70s. She thinks she's living in the 70s, but really it's like the 
the 80s or whatever, the 60s, I think, or something like that. She thinks she's in her 20s, but actually she's like close to 50 or whatever. No, it's not that one, but that one sounds interesting as hell. What, what's <laughs> oh, <yeah>. going on? <laughs> uh, I, I think that was season... I got to look that up again. That was one of the more recent seasons I saw. So either season f- four or three. I think it might be season three. I don't uh, know. The one I was talking about is that this chick had an aneurysm in her brain. And when she recovered from it, she didn't remember anybody, even her own kids. And her kids like meant nothing to her. Like her, uh, her, her aunt or her sister took her kids up to the hospital and they're like, look at mommy. And the kids are like, you know, happy that their mom wasn't dead. And, but the mom was just looking at them going, who, who are these people? And she had like no connection to the kids anymore. Cause she, yeah, it's like instant Alzheimer's. Like, I mean, let's think about that. Think about that from the perspective of the person who's dealing with that. They don't know that they've lost their identity or who they are. But it's terrifying for us to think about that if that happened to us. I mean, it was just one of those just, wow, like everything that you work for, all these memories, all these things that you take for granted you could lose them and then now you're just some different person and it's just it's very terrifying and it's a kind of it's a more of a real horror that something you know like a ufo abduction or something like that yeah i mean when you're dealing with the psychological that's that's a whole nother level of uh horrific things that can happen um i mean maybe not the most horrific but it's definitely well there are some horrific things that happen that ties into a later segment we'll discuss on this uh, particular episode yeah so uh cindy was not suffering from amnesia though Um, no no absolutely not (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately but it it was interesting to talk about yeah they 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 thought that it was a possibility and i just want to mention how that they that's thrown out a lot in this show that theme so um a little background cindy was raised in a strict religious environment they were all devout christian fundamentalists quote she was obe she was an obedient quiet girl Lots of friends, a type of daughter that you just enjoy. That's what her dad said about her. Um, so Cindy was looking forward to quitting her job in two weeks and going to Bible college with her boyfriend. Before she disappeared, though, she was spending a lot of time on her face and her clothes and her look. And um, the day Cindy vanished, police searched for clues, could not find her car keys uh, or purse. No sign of a struggle. Her bank account was never touched. Her social security never never turned up at another place. Uh, Ten months earlier, Cindy noticed an old, uh, an odd coincidence. Uh, Someone had painted the words, I love you, Cindy, on the wall across the street from her office. No one named Cindy worked at the uh, offices across the street at the strip mall. And the sign was visible for six months and then covered up. Within weeks, the message reappeared even larger in the same place. I love you, Cindy, by GW. Um... That yeah, that that definitely stood stood out to me. That scene with the I, big "I love you, Cindy." I mean, cause think about that. Like, if you like, I mean, it's I guess it's kind of less creepy. Or- what if they're well? It still would be creepy if you were if if you're a guy. I mean, any it'd be creepy for anybody. I mean, can you imagine this, Josh? Or outside the you know place where you do karaoke, somebody spray paint. Yeah. I love Josh. Mainly, I love be- you, Josh. Mainly because like I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of other guys because the male species yeah. is the is the violent race. You know, they're the uh-huh. obsessive kind of more violent race. Well, there's now. women too who are violent. And Wait, obsessive. I just said race. I meant I meant I meant to say gender. 
<laughs> yeah, there's women are there are women who are violent. You know, I mean, there's an old show on uh, the Investigation Discovery Channel called Deadly Women and and all that, and and, and it was uh, or Snapped. Snapped was another good show on Investigation Discovery that only dealt with women killers, which I thought was a great concept for a show and it was very interesting. But for the most part, like 90% of the part time, it's it's guys. So yeah, I would be creeped out only because I would think that it was a guy stalker who, you know, became obsessed with me or, or, or whatever, because that shit does happen, especially when you're on line and you put yourself out there to millions of anonymous people. Some um, of your karaoke fans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> Uh, karaoke fans god that's that's such an oxymoron a karaoke fan because <laughs> karaoke is so awful um so yeah anyway um among the people that were investigated with the initials gw was the maintenance man who worked at the law firm for some time he had the keys to all the offices uh he had the initials D- gw obviously but they found no evidence that he wrote the graffiti or had anything to do apparently i have a little update on that oh. so that, that's why i didn't inter- interject for a bit sorry folks um <laughs> so i know people don't like some people don't like that i love it uh but anyway this uh the person who wrote the spray painted message has since been identified and is not believed to have any connection with the case jose rodriguez jr is a suspect in the case and was one of the nine people indicted on the drug charges which we'll get to later but uh yeah so i guess he was the guy who wrote the message oh so the puzzle pieces so now we earn the title of the show because we are uncovering this unsolved mystery because this unsolved mystery left you hanging but as we've done our research uh we're finding out kind of a a a theme here which we will get to at the end um so the day before cynthia disappeared uh there was a man who went to the office to pay a legal fee and he had noticed that she kept receiving these calls and the car would call and either say something or or whatever and she would quickly hang up and the guy said the look on her face she was scared it get, and he says it gives me shivers to this day to remember the look on her face i mean it, it bothered this guy so much that he went home and he called the police and asked them to do a drive by and check on her uh, this guy just knew that there was something going on with this uh this woman at this office so then, um, September of 1981, a few months after Cynthia disappeared, someone called the police department. The lady said she was scared, and she was talking in a low, whisper-like voice. She said Cindy was being held in a basement in a white house. Then she called back and then hung up again. Um, at some point on the call, she mentioned that there were two houses side-by-side side owned by the same family, and the family was out of town, but their son, however, was home, and he was the party holding Cindy hostage in the basement. So the cops went out and started searching all over the place, and it was just impossible for them to get a positive location. Yeah. Because, dude, a fucking white house, two white houses side-by-side? Side, <laughs> I mean, Jesus, like, how many... Uh, you know talk about not narrowing it down at all like i don't and this is another thing that i i've noticed about that's why i don't even know if that's true it could have been just some person just pranking the cops it's a you know some people do that you know they they see a popular news story and they see an opportunity to kind of mess with the police and that's what it's got to be because like so many times in the show you get 
you, you, you get these tipsters who'll call in. And the tips that they leave, it's like, motherfucker, why did you even call in if you're going to give me such <laughs> vague-ass information? I would rather have nothing than what you provided because all you've done <laughs> is get my hopes up that something's going to happen, but you left me no key to unlock that door. So it's basically like I have no information at all with what little information you gave me. Well, that's bad, too, but the people who have what seems to be credible information and then it turns out to be BS is just about as bad as if you ask me. Um, yeah, but those people, a lot of them just feel like they're helping out and they just, you know, a lot of people are busy bodies and they want to stick their head where it doesn't belong and they, well... Not the person with that one case, I don't, I forgot what it was, what it was called, but it was this one case where this woman disappeared or whatever and there was a call that came in and says, I'm such and such or whatever. I can't talk too much though because... You know, I blah, blah, blah. And then you find out later that woman's dead. So and it hasn't been dead for a long time. So. Oh, yeah, I know what case you're talking about. Was, and it came out was... of like uh, Colorado or something like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like like miles and miles away. So that kind of that's what I'm talking about. That kind of BS where it's like, I'm such a shot. She's missing. But really, you're not. So it's one of those like, what the fuck is wrong with that person? <laughs> to me, when I picture bogus tips. I picture some old granny in her inner house who like is always watching everyone's business, who's very gossipy, and she almost like, and I've heard about this from one of my friends. My friend worked with this older lady that worked at Walmart, and she would have a police scanner in her house uh, just so she could listen to like what was going on, just so, just so she could eavesdrop basically, um, and she also kept her walkie-talkie on from walmart just so she could hear like i guess she lived close enough to walmart to where it still got reception to where she could hear what the employees were saying to each other and shit like so in my mind dude it's people who don't have a fucking life it's old it's older people who don't have a fucking life i mean i guess younger people cannot have a life too but i mean it's older people don't it's like an older older if uh an older version of uh cory feldman's character from gremlins you know, the one where he's calling and tells about the gremlins. It's like, oh, yeah, like, remember, you know, I, oh, Chunk. It's like Chunk. Remember when Chunk and the Goonies is calling? It's like, oh, yeah, like those creatures that you pour water on them and they multiply. It's like, no, it's true. Yeah, it's it's just like, I, I guess these people mean well, or maybe they just want to add excitement to their own life. But, man, I feel bad for police investigators in these situations because they just bog the fucking line up with bullshit. Yeah. And muddy the waters more, and, and and waste their time, and they could go out and look up on these leads, and they're bullshit, and then that really uh, affects other cases where they could spend time actually looking up real legitimate leads. And- That's like any time there's like a, a a car accident or anything like that. There's always it seems like there's always that one person who feels compelled to like come up to the cops and like get you know tell them what they saw and it's like not important information at all that they're conveying and it's like they just want to be a part of it like god those people annoy me those are the same people who (laughs) will slow their car down to 10 miles an hour on the highway to look at an accident oh i hate that god i hate those fuckers (laughs) fucking rubbernecks man Uh, that's why you have traffic in these accidents dude in jacksonville florida that's why you have traffic good god man that's that's every because people apparently don't know how to drive out here like they just they they just came to this country off from some third world country i don't know what the excuse (laughs) is but no one knows how to drive out here so it's inevitable that an accident will happen every fucking day 
and it's inevitable that everybody has to like slow down to a stop to look at it and take pictures and poke the people and be like hey you all right there buddy Uh, (laughs) take a selfie yeah exactly take a selfie (laughs) with the uh, person like wow look at me something interesting happened in my shitty nine to five life for once (laughs) at the expense of somebody else's pain and suffering some terrible just asshole taking a selfie with a goofy grin on his face behind some car that's wrecked and somebody's knocked unconscious in the background that actually did happen in uh in in this uh in jacksonville there was a firefighter who took a selfie or took pictures of uh some some decapitated body or something some car yeah and he got fired he got fired because it got it got on the news because the the pictures started circulating around the internet and the parents were really pissed off they're like dude that's yeah yeah it's like complete disrespectful to our daughter yeah um so anyway i got got off a rabbit trail on that one but um (laughs) So the police weren't able to find anything, you know, because they were given such uh, weak uh, leads on that phone call. Uh, They couldn't get a positive location on the house. Um, Then we get the big old update. Uh, Of course, the segment ends with, you know, the parents going, we wish we could find her, you know, yada, yada, yada. Then uh, they update on the show. They say in November 95, a federal grand jury handed down indictments of nine individuals for involvement in some kind of drug ring. Richard Miller who was one of Cindy Anderson's employers, was involved in the indictment, and uh, it was thought that Cindy was killed because she overheard Miller discussing details of their drug ring at the office. Yeah, I, I do believe that theory, because it ties in with what the guy saw. He saw her, you know, terrified on the phone. I mean, that ties into it really well, the whole thing that... That it would explain why she was so scared. Yeah, so like, the, the guy, you know, knew that she overheard it, and so you know, either he disguised his voice, or maybe he didn't disguise his voice, and he called and said, you know, look, bitch, if you open your mouth, I'll kill you and your whole family, or something, you know, along those yeah. lines. Um, I, yeah. I I've never made one of those calls before. Sorry if that sounded too realistic just then. Um, I actually call Mike every uh, Monday with that same threat, but it's about doing this podcast. Um. <laughs> But then, according to the uh, Unsolved uh, Wiki, uh, um, the person who wrote, as you said, it was uh, that J- Jose Rodriguez Jr., and he was a suspect in the case. He was one of the nine people indicted on the drug charges. Um, in 95, while he was on trial for drug charges, a witness testified that he had confessed to killing Cindy. However, police could not confirm this confession, and her case apparently still remains unsolved, although she is most likely dead and it was most oh, likely yeah. because of that scenario the aforementioned scenario and just as kind of another sad side note her father passed away in 2008 so yeah that's too bad may rest in peace but i don't want i i i did find it kind of strange this whole thing where he's talking about oh she was dressing up and putting makeup on and didn't eat breakfast because of it so she was becoming a debutante yeah i don't and know what that has like, to do with anything honestly <laughs> It was just like, oh, so just because your your daughter decides to look nice and dress nice, she's like some kind of slut now, apparently. That's kind of messed up. But, you know, that's what it is. Well, I could imagine... Hopefully living... they're reunited in the great beyond. Uh, father, <laughs> yeah, yeah father. I mean, I didn't mean to laugh at that, but... Um... You know, it's it, it couldn't, I couldn't imagine it was uh, too much fun living with a family of Christian fundamentalists, because... Uh, I mean, I, I grew up as a Christian, although I, I consider myself non-religious now, but uh, Christian fundamentalists, those those are like the Orthodox Jews. Th- those are people who really 
are like hardcore into uh, the teachings of the uh, Bible and you know sometimes specifically the Old Testament, which is kind of the dark ages of uh, that uh, Christianity with the. Uh, if you ask me, the Old Testament should be tossed out completely. It's just not relatable to modern people, right? Uh, in, at all in any way, but you know. That's just me. For me personally, I, I'm just, I, I'm not very religious either. I used to be, but only because of, you know, my dad was, and so I just kind of tagged along type deal. Right. But it's just, after reading about all this kind of stuff, the evangelists scamming people for money, the whole sort of history of the Crusades, and, and all the sort of stuff where a lot of these Christians, you know, uh, tend to just act like, oh, evolution isn't real, or whatever, and all that ridiculousness and then saying things like, you know, all these other, there's only one God. And then I'm like, well, there were many, many other gods before the Christian God, but apparently none of that matters according to them because, Oh, well, that, that none of that is just bullshit or whatever. So uh, I, it's you, if, my opinion, believe what you want to believe, but don't force me Right. To try to believe what you you want to believe, you know. There's a lot of uh, people who are the main problems with the organized religion. The religion itself isn't the problem to me. It's the organized part of it that's the issue for me personally. Right. Yeah, uh, I pretty much agree with that. Um, you know, proselytizing is never never a cool thing, as far as I'm concerned. Um, they're gonna go to hell. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, dude, I mean, I live in the Bible Belt. Like, you have no idea. Uh, it is just, it is, it is, it is, uh. You're watching these murder shows and these unsolved mysteries. You're going to hell. <laughs> well, no, that's okay. Like, murdering isn't so bad. It's, uh, if, if you want to, you know, marry somebody who's of the same gender, that's when you're going to hell. They pick and choose what you're going to hell for, like gambling yeah. and gluttony like you know overeating and being well, murder murder still is i think because that's one of the deadly you know the deadly sins yeah but it's not as bad as being a homosexual in the south i don't know we're we're we we if we haven't lost a quarter of our fan base after this episode i will be surprised but hey <laughs> we're going there lady the lady who wanted us to go there we're going there now so i hope uh-huh. hope you're happy about that i'm assuming she was a lady um i'm just being honest that's all you know, I'd rather be honest than bullshit people around. So, yeah, uh, we hey, don't have any sponsors wanna, or anything to anybody. Believe to what to. you want to believe. That's fine with me. Right. Yeah, that's how I feel too. And that's Just how we respect about it. That's that's the main thing. I think that's a pretty fair. Uh, you know, I think it's a pretty fair statement. I think anybody who uh, has a logical mind can agree with that. Okay, so now we're moving into the Canadian UFO. I've been wanting to talk about this one for a while. Um, this is one that even before we started looking into it, I thought, uh, I usually have a, I'm not going to lie, folks, I usually have a tendency to sway towards believing in the extraterrestrial kind of yeah. stuff because I, I truly do feel like there's no way that we're alone in this universe. And I, I feel like the uh, evidence, as far, especially as far as Roswell was concerned and, and other, other uh, sightings like that, it was just too compelling, you know, but... This one I always thought was I don't know it's interesting it's 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 very much up in the air. But... The most interesting thing about it is the guardian himself, this mysterious or her herself, you know, this mysterious figure who just sent this tape to somebody, you know, with this fingerprint on it. Um, if you ask me, I don't think I really don't think it happened. I don't think it was real. 
because uh, they had, why would somebody throw in that fake alien footage in there? And no, we'll get to that later. But yeah, yeah. let's let's die. Let's get on the diving board and jump up and do a spinning uh, jumbo gyro into this water of Canadian UFO goodness. None of those terms were anything official that I just mentioned. So don't don't go quoting those to your uh, swimming coach. Spinning corkscrew. Yeah, <laughs> sure. So uh, West Carlton, which is uh, in the province of Ontario. Um, in 1991, one resident had an extraordinary experience. On August 18th, around 10 p.m., Diane Labanick had just put her children to bed. Her husband was out running an errand, and the dogs began to howl. She looked out the window, and she saw flames. These were extremely red flames, and it didn't look like a fire, though. It was just standing in one spot. So she's seeing these flames, and then at, at that same moment, she saw a ship just kind of come down, um next to the flames and on top of the ship she saw a blue flashing light and on the bottom there was also a flashing light the ship went a little bit uh the ship um went back a little bit to the back of the trees and then disappeared and then all the flames went out at the same time the flames just blinked out when the ship flew away um it didn't enter her mind to phone the police because she thought you know what am i gonna do what am i gonna tell them you know like i just saw, you know, this strange ship and blah, 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 you know, what are they going to say? Okay, Diane, that's fine, you know, someone will be out there soon. So she she didn't really want to call the cops. Um, ten minutes after the lights blinked out and the ship left, a helicopter appeared just out of nowhere unexpectedly. Um, and it was, you know, one of your typical black unmarked helicopters, tinted window type dealios, just one of those freaky black choppers that just like, what the fuck is this? Who does this belong to? Um, after crisscrossing the area, the chopper flew over her house and into the night. The next day, Diane went to the field searching for evidence of the previous night's events. So she took the opposite approach of the guy from Bentwater. She, she wanted to find proof. Um, mm -hmm. The 1991 sighting was the second unusual event Diane witnessed in West Carlton because in 1989, residents had witnessed a burst of light over a nearby swamp. Diane might have remained silent about the 1991 episode had it not been for a tape that was sent to Bob Exler, who lives in Maine, in the United States, in February of 1992. A former NASA mission specialist, Exler is now a well-known UFO researcher. The tape, which is a VHS tape that Mike probably owns because he collects a bunch of VHS tapes. Um, <laughs> I wish I had that tape. Yeah, I know, that'd right? Be, that'd be pretty cool. Uh, the tape itself only had this, like, neon sticker-type label on it, and it had a thumbprint that you know obviously someone stuck their thumb in ink and then put the print on the uh, neon green label it and that, that's so ballsy right to just uh you know fingerprint you know on there catch me if you can yeah i mean you might as well put a middle finger on there too i mean that's pretty much what what, what you're insinuating with the fingerprints like yeah bitch you know catch well me. if it doesn't have a criminal record then it probably would be hard to True. To catch the person with just a fingerprint. I was so uh, happy for the longest time that the government did not have my fingerprints on file until I got that goddamn DUI like five years ago when I was 22. Now now my prints are on file, which is just great because there's a lot of people I wanted to kill. <laughs> um, so also beside the thumbprint was the name Guardian. And this is this is, you're going to hear this name Guardian a lot um, in, in this segment. Um, if you took a shot every time they said the name Guardian, you would you would be dead of alcohol poisoning. <laughs> um, 
Well, it's a cool name. I mean, you gotta yeah, keep... no, it is. Um, he's he's guarding us from something. I don't know. Um, Exler was perplexed and popped the tape into uh, his VHS player to realize that um, this was the same event that Diane Labanick witnessed. Um, they actually show the contents of the tape on Unsolved Mysteries, uh, which is kind of rare that they do that. Um, I, I guess whenever they have, like, hardcore evidence, like last week we talked about the Withville UFOs, and they actually played the tape of the guy, even though it was, wasn't the whole tape, and they kind of cut in and out of it with, between the scenes, which kind of annoyed me. I want to hear the whole unadulterated tape, just like I want to see this whole tape, too, but I guess they realize that not everyone's going to be into... UFOs and that that probably just take up too much time, so they just kind of have to edit in the scenes. But um, so far, it's one of the most convincing pieces of evidence that Exler had seen in his 12 years of UFO research. He had the sense that it was a real event rather than a prop set up in a room somewhere. Now, with this videotape, there was also a bunch of other goodies that got sent along with it. Well, I guess they'd be goodies if they were authentic, and that's yet to be seen. Uh, there was a map sent with the videotape showing the area of West Carlton where the UFO encounter had happened. Um, Exler then went to Canada with a fellow researcher, Graham Lightfoot. Um, together, they interviewed Diane Lebanek, who uh, Graham Lightfoot had met earlier when interviewing her for the 1989 sighting. So I'm guessing that's why they even mentioned the 1989 sighting, because when I was taking notes, I thought it was kind of... I was like, why did they mention that detail out of nowhere, the 89 sighting? But I guess it was to intro Graham Lightfoot later on. Uh, to their surprise, Diane described exactly what they had seen on the Guardian videotape, um, which the videotape showed um, the the ship coming down next to the Red Flames, but from a different perspective. But it was obviously on Labanek's property. Um, it was just from a different vantage point. Um, so Diane had no idea that this tape had existed. She hadn't seen it or anything like that. So it's kind of like when they came... Uh, to, to interview this woman, and she described exactly what happened on tape. Guys, this is before YouTube, this is before Vimeo or any kind of stuff like that, so it's kind of like, she would have had to have been directly involved with Guardian if for her to know about the contents on the tape, and that's the only way she could have known. There's no other way. So, mm-hmm. you gotta be of one of two trains of thought at this point in the segment. You either have to write this off as a hoax, just right now, or you have to be of the belief that okay, there's somebody named Guardian who had prior knowledge that this UFO was going to be there. See, yeah, see, that that whole thing, I mean, the guy has prior knowledge that you, how the hell would you have prior knowledge that a UFO is going to land anywhere or be anywhere unless you are some extraterrestrial yourself, <laughs> uh, which creates sort of an interesting potential X-Files segment. Uh, or episode or something. Yeah, but um, Stack actually had a really good line that he said in that segment regarding that. He said, The key to the entire episode relies heavily on the person named Guardian. The presence of this mysterious information um, in, a, in a remote field late at night with a, uh, or not information, in, informant, I, is what I meant to say. Um, the presence of, of this mysterious informant in a remote field late at night with a video camera in hand just in time for a UFO sighting can't be ascribed to luck. Yeah. So it can't be. There's no way. And plus all of the extra stuff that's included in the package just screams to me, "Oh look, I'm I I, I uncovered it. I'm some it's it looks it really does look like the work of some UFO super fan." Right. We'll, who we'll get into really that. wants to you know. 
So one of uh, this is one of the clearest videos, Dr. Bruce Maccabee, uh, who is a U.S. Navy physicist. This is one of the clearest videos he has seen depicting an actual object of uh, unknown origin. You could tell by the lighting and the flashes that it was a dome-shaped object. The bright strobing light was particularly intriguing to him because it blinked very fast and it was blue. It blinked much faster than normal aircraft beacon lights. It shows the object appearing over a rise, depicting someone in the field trying to get closer to it. In one scene, uh, which this actually always kind of creeped me out, in one scene you could see the light getting brighter and brighter until you get a diffuse in the camera lens as if the craft was shining a light right at the person who was videotaping. Yeah. Whoo, yeah. freaky. If that, <laughs> if that is real. I mean, if you were, you know, recording this thing and all of a sudden it shoots a huge floodlight over to you, it's like, oh, shit, gotta go. <laughs> you know, sorry. You know. I don't want to get anal probe tonight, so... <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna head, I'm gonna head out of here. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. <laughs> I, I, anytime I can use, it, I'm gonna use it. Um, uh. the object was so large, according to what these guys are saying. The object was so large that it, it would have been very difficult to hoax. I mean, this is what they're saying. They would have had to have brought generators or some kind of apparatus to run this thing. You would have heard noises in the video from said generator and said apparatuses but the craft itself seemed to be silent um dr robert nathan of nasa jet propulsionary laboratory uh he took a look at this and he could not explain the lights nor categorically nor categorically dismiss the tape as a hoax um ever since this event large black helicopters have cruised over the area unmarked with darkly tinted windows now that could all all be circumstantial that doesn't necessarily tie into anything uh, however, the Canadian government does deny that these helicopters are being used. They said, you know, this this isn't uh, this isn't us. This isn't uh, a government training exercise. Nothing like that. Well, so. yeah, Le Diane Lebanek says that these helicopters were flying so low that they blew the signals off her roof, and that is kind of hard to verify. Because I, I I remember reading something on this other link, which um, uh, I, I do recommend uh, anybody who's listening to this to actually check this link out. Yeah, it was very interesting. It was very informative. And it says something like, "Well, these helicopters can't really fly that low, and so without like crashing into something or whatever." I mean, it, it just seems it seems pretty implausible. Like they they don't go that fast. Uh, to, to blow shingles off uh, a roof. Um, it, 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 that's kind of... Plus, you notice that. And not only would Diane notice it, but pretty much everyone else in the neighborhood would notice it, or in the area. So, so Mr. Bob Exler comes back into the play on this segment, and if you can picture a young Elton John back when he was on, like... Uh, you know, TV like, show like, yeah, like, like when he had kind of that bowl haircut and the glasses and everything, this is kind of what Bob Exler looks like a very young Elton John, uh, circa, uh, your song or, you know, that, that kind of era in his career. Um, he's saying either a, this is an extraordinary elaborate hoax. B there's a government training exercise being conducted on private property or C it's an unexplained UFO, non-human technology. Um, According to Bob Exler, whether the event was real or an elaborate hoax, Guardian had prior knowledge of the event. Uh, Guardian is much more involved in this than the evidence suggests, is what Mr. Exler is talking about. Um, 
Nothing is known about Guardian's true identity. Also, with this package uh, that it contained the videotape and the map, there was purported military document documents that arrived that raised serious questions about Guardian's credibility. Now, this is where it starts getting very... The waters get even murkier as far yeah. as the whole thing about this being a real event. Among other preposterous acclaim, uh, among other preposterous claims, the documents allege far-reaching conspiracies involving UFOs, Red China, and nuclear weapons. Uh, Bob Exler called into question the authenticity of the uh, documents. Then a Canadian official, who they also had on the show, just flat out says, these papers are fake. And then he says, quote, someone with very little effort could have come a lot closer than this. <laughs> Which, let me just take it. I thought that was so funny. I never paid attention to that sentence until like reviewing this again in yeah. preparation for this podcast. But this this motherfucker says someone with very little effort could have come a lot closer to faking government Canadian <laughs> documents. So just, mm. that just, I don't think he was meaning to, but I think he pretty much just put his own country on blast. That uh, or well, he just put the guy who faked these on blast. I think that's his whole intention. I, I just think it's funny because he's like, yeah, you know, hey, if you if you want to fake some uh, Canadian government documents, <laughs> really not that hard, eh? Just uh, you know, so uh, just have at it if you want to give it a go. Uh, I just offended all of our Canadian listeners. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, uh, I thought that was pretty funny, but yeah, no, the, the, the official, the Canadian official, he flat out denied it. Yeah. He said, yeah, no, these are, these are fake as hell. Um, bunch of hoses created this. <laughs> oh God. Come on, Mike, you live, you live closer to Canada than I do. You can do a better accent than that. I, I can't really. I suck. Have I ever asked you if you've been to Canada before? No, and I never have. All right, so. well, that answers that question. Moving on. Um, <laughs> so also on this videotape, which I also thought was extremely interesting, also on this videotape, it showed obscure images of what appear to be alien beings. Um, now, if you can get just no. like... <laughs> no. <laughs> Sound like Squidward. No, SpongeBob. Um, these images... Uh, it basically what it looks like is a very diffused background, like just all black, and, and it's like the contrast is very sharp. It's like all you see is the white, kind of alien uh, face and hands, and then just kind of all black. So like, there's no kind of contrast for you to make out a body shape or anything. You just see whites and blacks. That's all you see. Yeah, and the alien face looks like a mask to me. It looks clearly like a, a mask. To which Bob Ex uh, to which Bob Exler asks, why would somebody contaminate such a such an authentic event with images of people dressed up in alien outfits? Um, yeah, you know. that's what makes me think it's some elaborate hoax by some UFO super fan who is like super into UFOs, and then got involved with other people who are super into UFOs, and found a way to hoax this video and then hoax these other sightings in order to get in the news or to get right. their uh, story into uh, the mainstream and available in the UFO community. Yeah, you got to kind of ask yourself with this, why wouldn't somebody fake it? You know, why, why wouldn't why wouldn't they try to fake it? If they're faking crop circles for notoriety or to get a rise out of people, why wouldn't they also fake uh, something like this? Now, Diane Lebanick, she cut her her character comes into play as well because in the segment, 
uh, the that Graham guy who interviewed her for the '89 encounter, he's he his basically his only thing to go on with Diane as far as her credibility is. Once you meet Diane and you just see her the simple way she lives, you you can just tell that she's not someone who's going to make this up. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> that's all you have to go on. That's that is the only piece of of tangible evidence that they have to believe this woman that she isn't somehow involved in this is to say, well, just look how she lives. She's she's a simple farm girl and she just saw this extraordinary thing. But then you relayed some information to me before we started this that made me even more kind of feel like this is a bunch of uh BS. You were telling me uh, about the yeah. when they were filming yeah. the Unsolved Mystery segment. Yeah, um, this quote uh, from this uh, article on uh, the internet, which is actually a really great article, by the way. It talks about the whole Guardian UFO and the CARP case on the Paranormal Zone X, uh, Paranormal Zone X website. So... Um, this is the quote. It says, Levinick had told Graham that she knew nothing about UFOs, nor did she care about them or talk about them with anyone. And yet, when the Unsolved Mystery segment was being taped at her home, one of the grips on the crew setting up a scene in which the Guardian was mailing a video uh, in Levinick's basement recreation room found cupboards containing many UFO books. And you meant recreation room, not recreation room. Yeah, recreation room. Um yeah, so in her basement, somebody who supposedly cared nothing about UFOs, didn't know about them, didn't care about them, who just who just happened to see this amazing thing out of her window, now has a bunch of UFO books in her recreation room in the cupboard. Hmm. You can kind of start to see now how there's something to be gained from this. Getting on yeah. TV, I'm sure she was compensated in some form as being because uh, she wasn't. She participated in the in the recreation, which yeah. never happens in the UFO ones. They'll happen in other ones, but it's rare that you see the actual mm -hmm. person involved in the story be involved in the recreation that Unsolved Mysteries actually airs. So, she also, uh, according to this this uh, link, had had more than one sighting. But it was only these sightings were only mentioned in passing by the investigator, and not very often. So it really questions the credibility of her if she's saying, "Oh, I saw more than one," you know. But then, like, it's only it's just hearsay. It's just what she said. And then the actual guy who was uh, heavily featured, I believe, on this uh, segment, um, the investigator. Uh, there's just so much words, so much stuff on this this particular <laughs> Oshler. Um, he is is uh, brought into question to me because despite having signed an exclusive with Unsolved Mysteries to not do another show until 30 days after the airing of the Carp case, this the Guardian UFO case, Oshler he records a segment for sightings. In January of 1993, without telling Graham until after the fact, interestingly, Dr. A.J. Corrington, a witness, participates in sightings after refusing to meet or even discuss the case of Graham and Clive Naden, the former director of MUFON, Ontario, in the early stages of investigation. So what we have here appears to be publicity stunt. 
whether it be mo for monetary purposes or to just kind of get their name out, get their faces seen on TV. Like I said, Diane Lebanek participated in, a, in the recreation, and she wasn't terrible. I mean, so obviously she's got a flair for acting. Uh, so if she can act on camera, maybe she can act in real life. Maybe there was a connection with this Guardian person. Exler, who you called Oxler, just to clarify with that yeah. so you don't get confused. Um, Exler... Um, you know, he, he, he goes on Unsolved Mysteries and then, you know, kind of, I mean, I don't know if he signs, you said he signed a contract or something. Yeah, breaking he did. Breaking his contract, going on another show talking about, so this guy has something to gain, you know. So, I think we could pretty much lay the hammer down on this one that this is bullshit. This is not a credible case because Exler says early, even Exler himself says earlier, why would somebody contaminate uh, such such vivid evidence of this authentic event with images of people in alien suits. Well, the answer to that is they wouldn't. They they wouldn't contaminate such evidence with that kind of shit unless all of it was bullshit. You know, A plus B equals C. If you have fake ass government Canadian government documentation, if you have fake ass alien sightings or images of aliens on the VHS tape, then obviously C. Uh, the event itself was was a hoax as well. And I think the only way that they got over on everyone is because they could rely on shitty 90s videotape technology to obscure <laughs> and blur out everything to where you can't see anything. You can't make out everything. It's the face on Mars syndrome all over again, where they think that there's a face on Mars, but then all it took was sending a high-def camera to Mars to see that it's just a mountain range of, of no value whatsoever. So I think that would be the case with this videotape too. If it was a 1080p uh, high def picture of this event that took place in this field, then perhaps you would see a lot more uh, things that would give away the fact, oh, you can see the lighting rig here. You can see the, and also you have to take into the fact that this happened at night and you have an object that's giving off a lot of light in, in contrast to a dark area around it, which would automatically silhouette anything that would be as far as like mm. rigging or anything like that where you would uh see you know anything holding it up or powering or anything it would instantly cast silhouettes on everything so i i lay my hammer of justice down on this as being bullshit a bullshit segment this did not happen it was still super entertaining as hell uh, as far as unsolved mystery segments yeah goes, it's, I, it's still unsolved in the way who the guardian is who right. is the guardian but so, it's almost like who cares because it's it's a yeah. you know at this point the guardian is nothing but I think it's kind of interesting I think it's kind of interesting though it's still kind of be kind of interesting to know who the guardian is to, to the whole sort of how did he do it like how did he fake this video and all of that um, and apparently uh, Graham Lightfoot himself he says he met somebody named Andy Williams who claimed to know who the guardian was uh, Graham and Osher. Uh, I, I probably said his name wrong Excellent. again. Exler uh, arranged to meet with Williams the next day in Ottawa. Andy Williams explained that a friend of many years named Bobby Charlevoix, probably said his last name wrong, had, a, had an ongoing interest in UFOs and had called himself Guardian over the course of those years. He went on to give details about Bobby Charlevoix and his interests. Um, Esler inexplicably gave Andy Williams much material regarding to the Carp case. And on November 22nd, Graham discovered that a co-worker named Bobby, a co-worker knew Bobby Charleboy well, and his sister Meg had dated the Guardian suspect. Graham talked with Meg, and she confirmed that Charleboy was an avid UFO buff and had discussed the phenomenon in many discussions in many occasions in the past. 
So that's a pretty much uh, a prime suspect there is this Bobby Charlevoix. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you, you have a suspect, uh, you know, I, I would now start looking in the direction of, uh, you know, how is this guy affiliated with Labanek? Because I feel like there there would be some kind of an affiliation. I mean, the fact that she does live in this kind of open field uh, out of the way of anybody who might even witness somebody trying to hoax something. I don't know. The pieces just fit so much easier for this being a hoax and it being real. Unlike Roswell, yeah. unlike the Allagash abductions to where it's like, or the Withville, Kentucky, you know, where it's just too or much. Or the effort. Belgian UFO. Right. And pretty much any of the other UFOs. Or the Mexican, or the Mexican, you know, Mexico City UFOs. Or the well. Ben Waters UFO. Pretty much any segment, be, you know, that we've gone over has way more evidence to the contrary of it being a hoax. But this one uh, is the opposite. This is too much, uh, too much in the hoax department for my liking. So, that, you know, I'm laying it down that, that, that this to me is definitely a hoax. So I agree. I agree. Uh, when I first saw the segment and I saw the whole, you know, fake aliens pictures and and just the the absurd lengths that the Guardian went to to try to add credibility to the videotape. But really, he discredited the whole thing. <laughs> it was just very unprofessional. Yeah, this whoever Guardian is, he's, he's not too bright. Uh, he was excited. It was the 90s. It was a more simpler time. People were more, you know, open to believing this kind of stuff. So, you know, it, it is it is what it is. I wouldn't be surprised if it was some remote control thing that he found a way to uh, create something out of old plane, you know, remote control plane parts or something and, you know, set that up and it flew it around the sky because I I know people, oh, the, the, it looks so big. Yeah, it looks big. Uh, They could have just zoomed in. Right. People's Uh, perceptions are a very weak thing, as they've stated before on Unsolved Mysteries. I would love to see this video resurface again and then have it analyzed today. Right. All right, so moving on, uh, our final segment that we're talking about is unfortunately something that is real that did actually happen. Yeah. Um, it's called On the Ultimate Collection. It's known as Richard's Rampage. This kid's a little fucking bastard. He is. At the same time, though, I, it, it's so tragic. I mean, I'm, I'm not one of those people, oh, yeah, I, I feel so bad for him. No, I mean he did he did do some horrific acts of violence and murder, but at the same time, it, it, it's it does show mental illness and how it's unpredictable and how people can at one point seem to be normal and then the mental illness will occur. They'll have a mental breakdown and then they'll do horrific acts, and then it it, it, it is tragic. It's one of those things where this is a case of severe mental illness. And who knows what might, and then maybe if he was diagnosed beforehand, maybe some of this might have, some of these things might never have never happened, but maybe, maybe they still would have happened. Um, so it, it's just tragic for both all the way around for yeah. the killer and for his victims. So, at the beginning of this story here, Ray and Ruth Ann Ritter grew up in Woodstock, Illinois, a small town north of Chicago. They were married in 1968 and had three children. The, R- the Ritters were a close-knit family. When 
Fifteen-year-old daughter Colleen began to date a childhood friend named Rick Church. It only seemed natural. They both went to a small Catholic school, and at first their relationship seemed like a typical teenage infatuation. Colleen was quoted by saying, Rick was real quiet. He was real good looking. He was involved in sports. He had a lot of friends. <laughs> she kind of, you know, for God's sakes, the girl went through some horrible shit, but she, she kind of seemed like the kind of girl where the lights was on, but no one was home kind of girl. She just, I mean, I don't know. And, it, and I'm not saying like, it seems like she has brain damage or has any kind of mental uh, deficiency. I just don't, she just doesn't come across as that bright to me. Um, I mean, the fact that you would date a guy and then your reasons are he, he was good looking. He was involved in sports. He had a lot of friends. This is probably a chick that I would not have gotten along with in high school. (laughs) That's neither here nor there though. Um, when Rick went to college, the romance began to cool in Colleen's eyes. And it goes back to a scene where Robert stacks like walking down the stairs. And I love how he delivers this next line. He goes, the waning of young love is an everyday occurrence. Most teenage hearts mend quickly. However, in Rick and Colleen's case, something went wrong. Terribly, terribly wrong. Rick would call Colleen every night from his college dorm room. No one could have expected that Rick Church was coming unhinged. Oh, beautiful, yeah. Robert Stack. Beautiful. It really was. It was oh. great. Very nice, Robert. Oh, perfect delivery. Um, Rick, they had it. Then they go, they go and show a scene where Rick would call Colleen and Rick's in his dorm room and Colleen's at her parents' house in the kitchen. And Colleen's like, you know, Rick, at first Rick's like, hey, how's it going? What's up? And she's like, fine. And then they're just kind of sitting there and she's like, well, I'm going to let you go. And he's like, what? I just wanted to talk to you for a little bit. And she goes, but you never have anything to say. And then Rick goes, that's not true. And then she goes, I, I really got to go and study. And then Rick goes, fine. Good luck on your math test. And just, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah it's just just, yeah i don't know if that's how it really went down or if that if that's how they reenacted it but but that i thought that was kind of funny because like you know she's like you just don't have anything to say that's not true (laughs) (laughs) i I gotta go study fine good luck on your math test good luck on your math test so in June of 1988, Rick came home from college to find that his parents had separated and his girlfriend had reached a decision. So then it shows them in the truck, like on the side of this wheat field or cornfield. And I actually thought it was a really well shot scene. And uh, it shows her in the truck with Rick going, uh, I think we need to see other people. And um, he's like, what? Why? And she's like, uh, you know, you're, you're just too controlling, you know? So uh, the beginning of that summer, he, uh, according to Colleen, the beginning of that summer, he became very possessive. You know, where are you going? Who are you going to be with? It was really hard breaking up with Rick. I still wanted to be friends. We had known each other our whole lives, but uh, it was just kind of a friendship that turned into a romance and it, it just didn't work out. You know, like they tried, you know, maybe dating would work and it just didn't in her eyes. So she put him in the friend zone. Oh, she friend zoned his ass hard. Um, so two months later, on the night of Saturday, August 30th, Rick called Colleen at 11.30 p.m. and he was upset and he wanted one last Saturday night with Colleen. He sounded very depressed and he was very silent, and this is according to Colleen. He was very silent like he knew something that he didn't want to tell her. Colleen said, look, if you're going to act like this, then I don't want to talk to you. And, and then, um, then he hung up on her, which she didn't think was unusual because they would hang up on each other all the time. Back when they were dating, they'd have fights. She'd hang up on him. He'd hang up on her, blah, blah, blah. 
Then the scene, the big scene, the big point in this story where it all changes. The whole tone of the story changes. I mean, it goes from like, okay, you know, I see what's going on to what? Yeah. And as you, you kind of mentioned this before, but this scene is just shot perfect. I mean, this is a 10 out of 10 as far as the music, uh, the narration. Um, it's just... I just the cinematography, cinematography, the lighting. Yeah, it was just perfect. Um, it's uh, it shows the outside of their house. And it's nighttime. It looks and, like something out of uh, John Carpenter's Halloween. It really does. Yeah, and 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 to picture the music, it's 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 doing that unsolved mysteries thing where something dramatic's gonna happen, like in the reenactment itself, and they're not just kind of narrating over some facts of the case. It's like they're setting up a scene for this reenactment to take place right in front of your eyes. So they're doing that very kind of almost like a heartbeat type percussion. It's like, doom, 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 with a very sparse piano over the top of it, you know, making this very creepy, ominous vibe. Great horror film type uh, music. Yeah. It's uh, pitch black outside of the house. And then it, the camera cuts to the side of the house and you just see Rick just kind of stalking alongside of the house. And, um, so then, as Rick starts to go up the steps in kind of the back of the house, in the back, like, patio area, Rick starts to go up the stairs, and the music cuts. Uh, Robert Stack's voice cuts in and says, um, Around 5.15 a.m., Rick Church entered the Ritter's house. What, pl- what happened next was based on evidence and eyewitness accounts. Ray and Ruth Ann Ritter were asleep in their downstairs bedroom. By 5.25 a.m., they were both dead. And it just shows Rick as he's walking into the bedroom, and then that narration kicked in. Upstairs, 11-year-old Matthew Ritter awoke. He was stabbed twice. In that scene, Rick's walking up the stairs, and all you see is this black silhouette, and it's kind of showing it from over Matthew's shoulder as you see the silhouette of Rick walk up the stairs and just stab the little brother. Colleen got awoken by all this and uh, she frantically dialed 911. Rick broke into the room. She ran. Rick never spoke. He began to stab Colleen. He had a cedar... Yeah, that was like the scariest thing, you know, the he didn't speak. Yeah. That's that's a total representation of mental breakdown. And, And some people, they do speak when they have a mental breakdown, but some don't. They completely shut down. And then whatever sort of dark thoughts or inhibitions they might have had are completely unleashed because they don't have control over their bodies and their actions anymore. There was a cedar chest. I was just lying on the cedar chest playing dead, but he kept attacking me. He just kept stabbing me. So then I tried yelling out, I love you, thinking that that would make him stop. Then Colleen ran out into the street screaming, help me, help me, when Rick was in hot pursuit. Rick fled when two neighbors came to Colleen's aid. Inside the house, Matthew had managed to give his address to a 911 operator. Operating under the false impression that Rick had run back into the Ritter house, when the police arrived, they concentrated their search efforts inside the house. Matthew was huddled with his friend upstairs, bloody and in shock, but he was okay. Colleen's friend was also unharmed. Downstairs, they found the bodies of Colleen's parents. Meanwhile, Rick was back at his house, hurriedly packing his things. By 5.45 a.m., Rick had already taken his mom's truck and vanished. Less than half an hour had elapsed since the bloody attack on the family. I mean, that whole the whole way the attack scene is shot and edited, you could have replaced Rick with Michael Myers 
and it would have had the same, you know, same effect and the same impact. That, that was it was just so well shot. They were hitting their stride with uh, by the time this segment came out. I mean, they were really kind of stepping up their game as far as the show was concerned. Very cinematic looking uh, segment. So they cut to the uh, one of the detectives and they go, "This was a kid who went to school here his whole life. Not not like some kind of criminal." It was totally out of character for someone like this. You know, speculation is the breakup. But to do something like this, uh, that's really something. That's what the guy says. Yeah, he definitely had some sort of mental issues that were not diagnosed. Or he didn't really get taken care of. And the stress of having his parents break up and then also losing his girlfriend, I think that's what caused him to go over the edge. (laughs) And the dog, apparently, over the edge as well. <laughs> oh, you heard that? Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, that's my stupid dog, Lenny, everyone. If anyone wants him, you can have him. Um, so, uh, in... Uh, oh, my God. Shut up! <laughs> uh, I don't know if I should leave this in or not. I just let, let people into my life. At the hospital, Colleen and Matthew were put under constant guard in case Rick returned. Colleen was criti- critically injured with 26 stab wounds to the back of her head. They thought that she might not be able to see, that she had brain damage, but, uh, I mean, I guess she didn't. I mean, uh, she seemed fine in the uh, interview segment, but I'll get more on how I feel about her, like, in, in more so uh, at the end of this. Uh, two days later, Colleen's parents were buried. She was incredibly emotionless about her parents' death as far as I felt. Uh, she seemed very blasé. I don't know if that's a coping mechanism for her, but usually when they have people on these shows, they'll start crying, like, in the middle of talking about her. You see them getting emotional, or you see them react in some way. She was like... Yeah, my parents were buried when I was in the hospital, and it kind of sucked because, you know, they're like my best friends, and like, I really, you know, just kind of sucked that I couldn't say goodbye, you know, but I said goodbye in my own way, um, that's kind of how she delivered the line, and I'm just like, dude, th- this is your parents' death, and you're just talking about it like you missed a field trip or something, like, I was... Yeah, some people, they deal with, uh, death differently than others yeah i guess that's how she dealt with it man because i guess her way of dealing with it was not dealing with it because she came across incredibly calm and collected about that so uh or maybe she just deals with it her own way uh you know maybe she already grieved and she already cried over it and decided it was better for her and her life and to not let that you know bother her or you know, devastate her. And, and, you know, some people can do that and other people can't. And I actually commend the people who are able to do that, to not let that sort of tragedy uh, completely just destroy their lives and, and, you know, things like that. I feel like Uh, it's the mental constructs in the person's mind that were there beforehand, though. I feel like this girl was very happy-go-lucky and not probably not what you would call an intellectual type before this happened so maybe it was easier for her to cope like me on the other hand i feel like uh i would just be devastated about that for years after the fact even talking about it so i mean but that's because my mental kind of brain makeup is different you know i'm very introspective and thought you know very i think very deeply about Mm. things and obsess about things and that's probably not a good thing Um, So I kind of envy her in certain aspects. So three years after fleeing the murder scene, Rick Church was arrested. Yes, they caught him. 
um, when he was spotted in a fast food restaurant by a Salt Lake City uh, police officer. Church pleaded guilty in exchange for the jury not seeking the death penalty. He's serving a life sentence in an Illinois prison now. I mean, I don't know how I feel about the death penalty, if I'm being 100% honest. Um, it's like, I'd like to think that we shouldn't, like an eye for an eye isn't the best way. I mean, that's kind of the Dark Ages sort of approach. I mean, you know, I, burn them at the stake type thing. Yeah, but so, but then when you hear about shit like this, it's kind of like, yeah, burn that bastard. You know, it's it's yeah, like one of those things. Yeah. yeah, I can see the argument against and for it. Yeah. So I, I'm kind of neutral on the death penalty. Uh, that's you why. Know, the, that's why I stay very in the middle on that because until something happens to me, I don't want to go around talking about like I know. Because I think exactly. that's I think that's one of those things that you really have to you really have to be put in that position before you can be for or against taking someone else's life for them doing some something doing you wrong in some kind of way you know um, but yeah. the, ba the bastard is in jail and I highly doubt he'll ever get out for such a horrendous crime um, always weird that these people like they get obsessed. they act out these horrific things and then they like snap out of their whatever was like you know yeah. making them crazy that, that's what the, that's what the that's what a mental breakdown you know that's what can happen with mental illness and that's what's so scary about it is that even the person who commits these crimes you know wasn't very cognizant of what they were doing when they did these things it's they just snap out of it and then oh my god what did i do type thing right i mean that's horrifying that's horrible um, that's why I feel bad for some of these. Be I mean, it, it's one of those things that if it is a confirmed diagnosis of mental illness, and we don't really necessarily know that for sure with Rick, but I tend to, I think that is the case with how it happened. I mean, he doesn't say anything, and then it seems to appear that he kind of snaps out of it later. Um, but he did also kind of get away. But, I mean, really, he probably would have known he's covered in blood. <laughs> I mean, once it snaps out of it, then he realizes, oh, fuck, what did I do? I better get out of here type deal, you know. Um, which yeah, shows criminal, which kind of to me shows criminal intent, because it's like you knew you did so. It's like, you know, the difference between right and wrong at that point. That's why you fled. Oh, yeah, exactly. But at the same time, I mean, who wants to be? It, it, it's it's interesting. It's like, did he know what he was doing or didn't he? I kind of want to know if he stood trial and was deemed not mentally competent or something like that, or he was deemed competent enough to stand trial. Obviously, he was deemed competent enough to stand trial because he got convicted, right? So is this really a case of mental illness, or is this a case of just some fucking psycho guy? Who, um, well, in time, mental illness is also, there is the psychotic sort of, aspect is tied into mental illness so to me, you to me this, this this guy tendencies the whole time it's like there's so many cases i mean okay the case of the obsessive boyfriend uh going overboard and harming either the girlfriend or the girlfriend's family i mean that's that's an all too familiar tragic story and the way he does it though is so Right, it just, it's so yeah. over the top. It is yeah. so over the top, man. Like killing her fucking 
parents. I mean, usually they go after the girl. Usually they have no interest in anybody but the girl, you know. Um, That's what makes you think that he was in some sort of daze or something. I don't know, he, dude. I and, just... the, and the fact and the fact that she said I love you and tried to get him this net and he didn't say anything, that kind of ties into the thing that I, I there's something there was something wrong with him mentally when he committed these crimes because if he was completely all there wouldn't he have some sort of response to that right the woman he apparently loves and is the reason why he did this and he has no response to her whatsoever probably because he knew that she was just saying it you know which again showed that he had enough cognizance to to know that too you know that oh you're, oh yeah you're not being truthful you don't really love me. but he but he didn't say that though he wasn't he, he just stayed silent that's the thing well he either way either way this way. this uh this dirt bag uh d- well absolutely deserved he to pay deserved for his what he got yeah um, you know, regardless of whether you had a mental breakdown and did it or not, you still did it. Everybody uh, has choices in life, you know. Everybody has choices. Yeah. And he made uh, everybody, and he made his choices. And uh, he, I mean, not only did he fuck up Colleen's life, I mean, by her getting stabbed and shit, but I mean, like, she had another brother that they didn't even talk about in the segment. Who, you know. That guy, and who was away apparently, so he has to yeah. find out about his parents dying because of his sister's yeah. crazy uh, ex. And ugh, God, what a horrible yeah. situation! And, and then think about Rick's parents and his family; they have to deal with that too. That you know, they're you know, the the member of their family. You know, that his parents uh, who probably raised him and didn't even think he was even capable of this. You know. Yeah. Just realizing, oh my God, what did he do? Well, why did he do that? And then that whole just, you're constantly questioning yourself. And but what happened? Why did this happen? And, and yeah, it's bad for both sides. It's tragic. It's tragic for both sides. And I think, and, and I don't think the side of the murderer gets enough sort of exposure uh when it comes to you know how the tragedy of it all and everything i mean it's really easy to just forget about that but i tend to try to think about it both sides and the impact that it has on both sides and it's devastating for both sides it isn't isn't more devastating for one side as it is for the other is it's both devastating for both of them um it, it, it's it, it's 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 just awful all the way around yeah no it is um, I, I, I'm going to start a new thing here. I deem Rick Church as the Uncovering Unsolved Mysteries podcast asshole douchebag of the week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Next uh, week there'll be an argument against that. Next week there'll be a, a new candidate from one of the other segments that either tries to offer a weak explanation for something paranormal or does something like this or whatever it may be. Uh, but, but Rick Church is the uh, ass douchebag of the, uh, of the week. But, you know, they got him. Justice was served, but it's fucking unfortunate as shit. Feel bad for them. Hopefully they moved on. They'll never the bring back, you know, the the parents. I mean, that's the thing. You know, justice being served is only... It only provides so much relief. Because that, that, that hole was always going to be there. And, and that's the thing. It's... 
hopefully they had friends and relatives around him in a support system. I mean, like I said, Colleen, uh, she she seems like she's going to bounce back from stuff. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't know about the the son. I mean, God, that kid lost his parents at such a critical age. You know, imagine losing your parents at 11. Jesus. Yeah. Be awful. Awful. But, uh, yeah, my back is sufficiently sweaty from sitting in this computer chair. And we were... <laughs> so is <was> mine. So, yeah. <laughs> we were clocking in at around two hours here. This is by far our longest one that we've done. Although it might be shorter after I edit out some of the, uh, <laughs> some of the stuff in here. The guffaws and whatnot. Um, gaffs. Or stuff that doesn't even really tie into what we were talking about. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like my dog barking. Um, I don't know. I might leave him in there. So he, he can have a national platform for his message of bark, bark, bark. <laughs> I'm here. Bark, bark. But, well, um, but yeah, uh, I don't have anything else to say about this case. Besides the tragedy of it. Uh, sorry, we ended on such a low note this week. Uh, just hey, yeah, kind of sorry. Out. Um, so, yeah, like I said, we have a Facebook page. You can uh, find us on there. Uncovering Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, it might not be up there at first. I don't know how it works. Uh, I remember when I started a facebook page for another thing it took a while for it to actually come up so i don't know how that works but uh thank you for the continued uh listenership on all the other uh platforms out there the stitchers and the pod beans and the youtubes and the sound clouds and all that stuff we really appreciate it this podcast just continues to grow and that's always a good thing because you feel like you're doing something right um you can find mike on his youtube channel youtube.com slash ocp communications uh, you can find me at youtube.com slash dancing with ghosts and the number two. And I think I've gotten some subscribers from uh, this podcast, so that's, that's a cool thing. Uh, 